From WHQR Public Media, this is the Newsroom. Welcome. I'm Ben Schachman. Thank you for joining us. On today's show, we'll be exploring an oral biography of Williston, the all-black Wilmington High School that was a community institution until it was shuttered in 1968. And we'll be taking a closer look at Eagles Island, the 3,000-acre stretch of land between Brunswick and New Hanover counties. The island, which is rich in history and natural beauty, has remained almost completely undeveloped, and there's growing support for a public nature park to help keep it that way. But first, my guest and former colleague, WECT investigative reporter Michael Pratz. Michael, thanks for being with us. Yeah, of course. So I want to talk about a project we've been talking about for a while, and that is a little bit of a reunion. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, for those of uh, for those of you listening that didn't know, we used to work together at Port City Daily. We've since kind of split and gone our different ways. But uh, what we did want to bring back was the podcast that we had. Uh, a weekly podcast back when we were at Port City Daily. Now it's looking like it might be a bi-weekly, uh, every two-week podcast situation collaborating between WHQR and WECT. Yeah, and uh, the plan so far is to sort of tackle local government. This is uh, you know City of Wilmington, New Hanover County, other local bodies as it becomes relevant, and just give us a chance to, after the stories break, uh, you know, take a minute, think about it, think about what the long-term impact is, think about you know, what it means in a broader context, and then really get into it. Yeah, definitely. I think unpacking some of these uh, some of these decisions that city council makes or county commissioners make, uh, they, they simply just warrant more time than either of us are allowed to really uh, can actually do without, you know, having a podcast. We can talk. I mean, we've done it. We've talked for 45 minutes about, uh, you know, county commissioner meetings, which, you know, almost can go half as long as a county commissioner meeting. Yeah, uh, we'll try to keep it a little more concise than we used to in the old Port City Daily days. But, yeah, it's just a chance for us to do a deeper dive. Um, and they'll be able to find this on WECT and WHQR once we get this up and running, right? Right. And one of the things we are doing since, uh, you know, we, with WECT, we are television. So we will be uh, recording. Some days we'll record here in the WHQR studios. Other days we'll be in the digital studio at WECT. Uh, either way, you can watch the podcast as well as listen and this will be going up on, on our website, uh, video included, and uh, I'm assuming it will be up on yours. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so some of the things we're looking forward to getting into as, as this goes along, um, you and I have talked about this. Uh, we want to take a look at downtown development. Uh, yeah. We've talked <laughs> about River Place um, and uh, you know some of the things that are percolating for the uh, so-called gateway properties. That's you know, to your right as you come in on North 3rd off of Martin Luther King. But tell us a little bit about what you've been thinking about for River Place. Yeah, so for River Place, I mean, obviously you have some of the concerns that we've talked about in the past, uh, The uh, what seems to be questionable construction um, of the buildings themselves. Uh, you know, as, as we found out that uh, they're currently in the middle of basically rebuilding a lot of these they had uh you know didn't have firewalls that went all the way up to the you know up to the ceiling and that that's not a firewall at that point um you know there's just a lot of issues there uh want to look into the the construction we also want to take a look at uh the the east west partners the developer behind the whole project because that is also the same partner that uh, the city of Wilmington is looking at possibly eyeing this gateway project. So we definitely want to take a closer look at who's involved with what, some of their other projects, any, you know, uh, good things, bad things, everything in between. That's a great point. The Because uh, your coverage back at back at Port City Daily, 
um, started you know years and years ago in River Place. Uh, issues that you know right off the jump, I believe, costs went up around eight million dollars. Is that about right? Yeah, that's right. Before they ever broke ground. Uh, and so, in addition to there were troubles with air rights, there was troubles with eminent domain that ended up costing, I think it was an order of magnitude more than they thought they were going to spend. Yes. Uh, you know, and some of these things, to be fair, you know, are going to happen with any major development. But because the city will be, you know, pooling public money, your listeners and readers and viewers' money, uh, with private money, it's worth taking an extra close look at the history of this developer and the city and trying to get a sense of, you know, are there are there new regulations? Are there new stop gaps in place to prevent that from happening again? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that's a great point. For the most part, we're not going to see either of us really, uh, unless there's something significant uh, happening to a building that you know calls for a closer inspection. For the most part, we're not really going to look into private developers doing private thing with private money. Um, as interesting as some of it may be, we'll talk about those, but. Uh, this this does impact taxpayers directly, so it's definitely worth taking a look at and seeing where uh, your money is being spent. Yeah, uh, another issue that uh, we've both talked about and are looking forward to hopefully collaborating on, because uh, this has been discussed at the county and city level too, is gun violence. Yes, definitely. It's uh, At least anecdotally, I don't have the official FBI data or stats, but it does appear to be a trend that's going across the country. I did see some uh, some numbers for larger cities, including Phoenix, Atlanta, uh, Chicago, Detroit. Uh, gun violence does seem to be up over last year nationwide. And, you know, can that might be chalking it up to COVID, the pandemic, and people being at home, people not being in school, people being out of work, all sorts of different factors. But we want to take a look at it on the local level and see what's driving it if, you know, if there are uh, extenuating circumstances that are contributing to this. We want to look into that and see really what's behind it. Yeah, we've also talked about, you know, putting this in context with gang and gang-related violence. It's not always the same thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a lot more complicated than simply just saying, like, oh, it's blood versus Crips. Um, But there's a lot of factors. And, you know, I think one of the most important things here is that there's plenty of coverage of crime. Right. You know, anytime there's a shooting or arrest, you see the mugshots, you see the coverage. But what you and I have seen is less of sort of putting that in the bigger picture and analyzing you know, what's going on, explaining to people not just that there was a shooting, but why was there a shooting? Yeah, exactly. I think there's a lot of a lot of people are starting to ask uh, a lot of good questions. And to be quite honest with you, we're not getting a whole lot of answers from law enforcement right now. Um, so we definitely do want to answer those questions for for everyone involved, you know, in the city, because these are things that matter. Again, while some of it is restricted to uh, lower income areas, some of these shootings, regardless of where they happen, they do impact everybody. Um, but we've seen a lot of uh, a lot more drive-by type shootings where people are shooting at other people driving down the road, and you know that that does change the dynamics uh, as far as who's involved with that, as far as innocent bystanders go. Absolutely. So a lot to unpack there. The last thing I want to talk about is, you know, in a lot of media markets, you don't see a lot of these collaborations. That's starting to change a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we have talked to I mean, you guys have an investigative network. We do. Yeah, we have the uh, the North Carolina Watchdog Reporting Network um, is a collaboration between uh, seven different newsrooms across the state, including WECT, that we uh, work on some of the bigger projects that we just don't have the resources for because that's what a lot of this really does come down to is uh, resources, manpower, and also working smarter, not harder. Uh, if, it, if we don't need to send me to Charlotte or to Raleigh, uh, 
we shouldn't if we have somebody that can be there that's already stationed there. Absolutely. So it's our hope that collaborations like this, and hopefully not just limited to this podcast, um, can help us do some of those things, extend our reach, get more from, you know, everyone's dealing with small newsrooms and limited, uh, just limited number of bodies. Yeah, exactly. So stay tuned for more announcements about this podcast. Uh, We hope to be releasing that soon. And until then, WECT investigative reporter Michael Pratz, thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Coming up later on the show, we'll unpack the history of Eagles Island and discuss how it could become a public park. But first, after the break, WHQR's own Rachel Keith brings us stories from Williston alumni. You're listening to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schockman. Please stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Rachel Keith. On today's show, we're bringing you stories from Williston alumni, people who attended the All Black High School before its doors were closed in 1968. Former students described the school as a community where you knew caring teachers and staff were there to challenge you academically. While long-term residents of the Cape Fear region likely know some of these stories, today we're presenting them through a slightly different lens. With us today is Christine McDowell, a native of Wilmington who attended New Hanover County Schools from kindergarten to 10th grade. She recently graduated from Middlebury College and wrote her thesis entitled, Listen, Witness, Amplify, on the ongoing legacy of school segregation by law in eastern North Carolina. One of the main components of her thesis was creating a two-week summer social justice program in 2019. McDowell received grants from both the Davis Foundation's Projects for Peace and the Kellogg Endowment for the Humanities, which allowed eight local high school students to participate. Part of this program was to have them interview 20 black elders in the community who attended segregated schools. She says through the youth's interactions and stories with the Williston elders, she'd hoped they'd, quote, reclaim their history, and she wanted them to contextualize the struggles that the black community continues to face in education. Also joining us today is Sam Garrett, one of the students who participated in Christine's program. He graduated from Whiteville High School this past May, and he's attending East Carolina in the fall. Welcome, both of you. Christine, I want to start with you first. Why pick this thesis topic, and why was creating this program so important to you? What really came as my inspiration for this thesis project back in 2018 when I began working on this program was when I began reading news articles, learning that my elementary school, what was then called Gregory School of Science, Math, and Technology, is now called Gregory International School, had become resegregated. So um, around that time, I was actually able to do some research and actually look at the levels of neighborhood segregation in the area and how the school board had kind of stepped back from their responsibility to provide an equitable education to all children and kind of said, oh, the neighborhoods are segregated, so we can't fix school segregation. So I think it was really a personal reason that I pursued this project, learning that my elementary school had been resegregated. And the purpose of the program, what were you trying to do with Listen, Witness, Amplify? Yeah, Listen, Witness, Amplify, the inspiration for that 
was working with the Davis Foundation's Project for Peace and looking at how I could make my community a more peaceful place. And when I think about my community, I was born and raised here in eastern North Carolina, and I spent a lot of time in different places like Wilson, North Carolina, Mount Olive, North Carolina growing up. So I was aware of how ongoing issues with race relations still are a barrier to peace in eastern North Carolina, starting with the schools and how people experience school segregation by law and how they experience integration. And my inspiration for wanting to have the youth involved was because I knew that I wasn't necessarily getting this education coming up in the public schools here in New Hanover County. So I wanted to have a multi-generational program so that the older people could serve as teachers and elders and the younger people could serve as storytellers to really unite the community in that way. And Sam, how did you learn about the program and what did you hope to gain from the experience? I learned about it in the summer from my mom. She told me that they were interested in like getting youth involved and what I was interested in, I was just, I guess I was interested in like learning more about the past, I guess, and like how my community has like been through or I just wanted to learn more about my community. So we're going to play some clips from the interviews that the two of you, along with others in the program, gathered in which you sat down with Williston alums to hear their high school experiences. And I want to first start with Barbara Davis, who graduated from Williston in 1959. And here she is talking about how school was a part of her family's legacy. Well, I think a lot of it is what happens in the home prior to your schooling. By the time you get to high school, you're just so excited about being there. Uh, most of us had parents who also attended that school. My mother, Catherine B. Ennett, graduated in the class of 1935. My father was a student there as well. And they instilled in us a desire to learn, a desire to persevere. And also they explained that we had to have respect for our teachers. And that started in kindergarten. So um, it was just an environment where you wanted to be every day. You never wanted to miss a day. You didn't, even if you didn't feel well, you would just feel so bad because you couldn't go to school. That was the impetus. It was just a wonderful place to be. So Sam, how common was Barbara's sentiment among the people that you interviewed? Actually, it was very similar. Everybody, really, they just loved the going to school, and they said, they said that it was the most fun part of their lives, actually. Everybody seemed to have the same view on school. In my school, it's very clicky, I guess. It's not as connected, and we're not, like, in unison. It seems like they had more of a community going on. Christine, talking to the alumni, because you were there with the students, and you've, you're in some of these interviews as well. I mean, what was the takeaway that you wanted the youth to have or you to understand about their experience at Williston? I think in terms of a takeaway from these interviews with these people who experienced segregated schools in Eastern North Carolina, what I was hoping for the youth to really take away is that there's a lot to be gained in learning about their history and that their history has a lot of ramifications on the future. Unfortunately, some of the people going through social studies education in our public schools in the area can walk away kind of bored and kind of disinterested in their history. 
But I was hoping for the youth to walk away with the perspective that I can learn about my history, I have a reason to be proud of my history, and that by participating in the collection and the archival process of this history, I actually can be more equipped in order to pursue change today. So I want the youth to really see themselves in the work and becoming more engaged through the work. So civic engagement was really what I was thinking about. We're going to hear next from Elaine Phillips, who graduated from Williston in 1964. She talks about the differences between the black and white schools at the time. New Hanover High was a high school for them, and Williston was a high school for us. We didn't play them in sports at all. We were just like a separate entity. We got their books and I was going to ask you about that, right? We got their leftover books. We never got the new books. So, Christine, can you talk about the systemic differences between the black and white schools you found while researching your thesis, and how do those inform our educational landscape today? One of the really interesting things when we talk about the narrative around segregated schools, what comes to mind is an exhibit at the Museum of African American History in Washington, D.C., and the classroom on the left It has older facilities. The classroom on the right has newer facilities. And I think it depends on what era you are talking about in Williston history. Um, Around the time of Brown v. Board, Dr. Eaton, after which Eaton Elementary School is named, actually successfully sued the school board, and they were forced to renovate Williston. So some of the facilities after some of these lawsuits were more comparable. But, yeah, at that point the high schools, what a lot of people emphasize was that a lot of the teachers at the black schools were actually able to get free master's degrees and a lot of advanced teacher education over the summers. Just because of the way the the graduate schools were also segregated, a lot of them were able to get free teacher's education. So a lot of the teachers at some Willis and other schools actually had multiple master's degrees. So even if the textbooks were older, they were making sure that the students still got the material and got up-to-date information. So I think it's really important to emphasize that a lot of these teachers were working overtime, were doing a lot of professional development training in order to make sure that the Williston students still had equal, if not a better education in some cases, because these teachers had more degrees than some of the teachers at the other school. Through listening to your interviews, Elaine Phillips, who we just heard from, had a compelling conversation with two of the students. She's asking them if they learned about the 1898 Wilmington coup d'etat. Did you know about it? I didn't until we came to this program here. Yeah. Yeah. Because you don't see it anywhere. Anywhere. You don't. They don't talk uh, about you it grew up school. here, right? Yes, ma'am. Okay, did you know about it? Did they tell you about it in school? No, ma'am. Me neither. And I think that's something that should have been told to us. Most definitely. But I had to look like a dummy sitting in front of my professor. But I got a bunch of books after that and read it. My grandmother was right in the stuff that she said. Mm -hmm. I did see in the paper, I want to say a few years ago, that they said 60 blacks were killed. My grandmother said that the young boys were walking down the street Mm -hmm. just killed them. The paper said 60 people got killed. Mm -hmm. My grandmother said Cakeville River was called the Blood River because more than 60 people got killed. But that's not on the record. On the record, it said 60. And I remember that. I was like, ooh. 
Sam, you talked about earlier about learning your history and learning Wilmington's history and the Cape Fear region's history. What was the history that you learned through this program and the history that you didn't learn in school? I will say that before this whole, before the whole uh, camp, I was disinterested in history as a whole subject. I don't know, it just, it, it was very boring to me. But after like interviewing the people that experienced like the racism and, and the differences, that was interesting. It made me, it made me have, it sparked interest. I would like to say that I feel like it's an experience that everybody needs to have, I guess, just sitting and doing, like learning firsthand rather than through textbooks. Cause I feel like it gives you a level of appreciation and understanding of what came before us. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the newsroom on WHQR. Next, we're going to hear from Stephanie Moore, who graduated from Williston in 1966. She's actually the sister of Wayne Moore, who was one of the Wilmington Ten. The Wilmington Ten were wrongly accused and convicted of arson and conspiracy. Their convictions were overturned after a decade, and they were officially pardoned in 2012. What we're about to hear is Stephanie Moore speaking strongly against the closure of Williston. That caught the community totally off guard, and here she even has a theory as to why the school was closed. We were too young. Our parents should have done something. We were just children. Our Parents should have done something. I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. I can say as a parent, if it had happened to my children, they would have seen me at the Board of Education. So do you know what happened to the children that did not get to finish high school? Like, where did they go as in terms of to finish their education? What you talking about? When Wilson closed, mm-hmm. they went to New Hanover and Harvard. Mm-hmm. There were only two high schools when Williston closed. Mm-hmm. Laney came later. Mistaken, the building for Williston was actually a newer building than the building for Hanover. Am I mistaken? Yes, ma'am. If the one building was newer, why do you close the newer building rather than the older building? Because it was going to have to be districted, and a whole lot of people were in uh, Wilmington city limits. A whole lot of white people was going to have to go to Williston. That's why. Now, what would have been the problem with that? Their mom and daddy didn't want them to go to Williston. So you can hear, actually, Sam and Christine talking with Stephanie Moore. And, Christine, part of your thesis highlighted the controversy surrounding neighborhood schools and how then-Republican New Hanover County School Board member Elizabeth Redenbaugh in 2010 took a stand against that board policy. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. Elizabeth Redenbaugh actually received the Profiling Courage Award, which is given the legacy of President Kennedy. And she, even though she was elected as a Republican— believed really in the notion of loving your neighbor as yourself. And she talked about that she could not, in confidence, vote for any redistricting plan through which any school would be majority-free and reduced lunch. Um, Today, rather than using race as a measure of segregation, they often use socioeconomic status through qualification for free and reduced lunch to determine um, what equity in schools looks like. And in terms of people who maybe don't have children in schools, the reason that frame reduced lunch matters is that parents from lower socioeconomic class often can't be as involved in the schools because they're often maybe working on these jobs for seven and a quarter an hour. 
and they don't necessarily have the leisure time to be able to volunteer in the same way. So if we can make sure that every school has parents who are able to be involved in the schools and has that leisure time, and you don't have any one school where you have a super majority of, of students with free and reduced lunch, you're typically able to support the school as a whole more equitably. Elizabeth Redenbaugh really believed that every school could be a successful school, whereas some other parents have the notion that only my child's school needs to succeed. And some of them explained it in racialized language, saying, quote, unquote, the bottom line is this, I don't want my children in school with black children, end quote. So some of those things that Stephanie Moore was talking about, about white parents not wanting their children to go to school with black children, some of those same sentiments are being expressed in the 2010s when I was in middle school. So in some ways, um, some people talk about history doesn't repeat, it rhymes. So some of the same issues with maybe the white community not have, having fully accepted the black community still exist and are tensions within our schools today. And that quote you pulled was that that was from Elizabeth Redenbaugh retelling what a parent said to her. Yes, yes. She would just be in the grocery store and she'd have parents approach her saying that they because they had elected her as a Republican, their expectation was that they would vote for resegregation. And she refused to do that. And unfortunately, she lost re-election. But actually, recently, the Port City Daily has done research that basically proved her right. Um, unfortunately, Elizabeth Redenbaugh didn't want to be right. She wanted to be wrong about how resegregation would really shortchange the black community. But 10 years later, in 2020, there has been research that she was right. And in schools such as Wrightsville Beach Elementary School, schools such as Eaton Elementary School have climbed ahead. And other schools such as maybe Rachel Freeman and other schools in the inner city have fallen behind. So we're seeing a, a gap that some scholars such as Gloria Ladson Billings refer to not as an educational gap, but an educational debt understanding that there is a debt owed to the black community for how there has been a systematic underinvestment in our children's education, not just since the 60s, but in my research, even going back to the 1890s. So because of this debt, we need to, to repay it in order to reach parity in education across um, the black-white binary. Yeah, and I want to get to that in a minute about how we move forward. But first, I want to go to our last clip. We're going to hear from alum William Evans, who graduated in 1966. He's talking with a student about what the black community lost when Williston closed. It's like home away from home. When you leave your house, you're still respected and you still feel like you're cared about. And like I said, in preparation for life, it was the same thing when we went away. This when I went away to school. It was people there that came through the same type of environment. So it was just a continuum. I definitely wish I could have attended Williston during that time to experience that because we do not experience that now in school. No, it's a totally different setup. Mm -hmm. Do you think school systems in Eastern North Carolina should recreate another Williston? Or what does a more equitable education look like for our region? Yeah, this is really a good segue into critical race theory. Critical race theory is thinking about how race was constructed in order to create deficits across the black-white binary. And that in order to really repair this breach, which is very relevant with Reverend Barber and the Poor People's Campaign, 
Um, we need to think about how we can repay this educational debt so that we can reach parity, thinking about how we're in a global economy. And when America succeeds, when our communities succeed, we do better on a global scale. And I don't think it's necessarily necessary to try to recreate um, some of these schools. Some people are thinking about, oh, let's try and just pull the black children out of the school system and maybe create charter schools to try to recreate the old thing. I think we need to maybe look to some of our leaders in our education system today. So in terms of recreating, I don't think the path of going toward the privatization of public schools by creating maybe an all-black charter school, I don't think that's necessarily the path forward. But I would love to, for people in Wilmington to think about the fact that some of these historically black high schools that have been integrated have become some of the most academically successful schools in the community. Because oftentimes, the alternative when they close schools like Williston is to build fringe schools. Holly Shelter is an example of a fringe school because it's all the way out in Castle Hayne and almost all the children have to be bused. So as Wilmington is growing, I think Wilmington is projected to double in size, we're actually going to need another high school. When I was at Laney around 2012, we had 1,900 students. They've been able to get the numbers down a little bit, but that we're only going to get more people coming to Wilmington. So as we look toward the growth of our city, I think there should be a serious conversation about actually reopening Williston. Williston, in terms of geography, would be much easier to have an integrated school in terms of socioeconomic status because it's more central to the county rather than buying land and building a high school on the fringes. There was a conversation in 2019 about turning Williston into a school similar to Durham School of the Arts, but I think they actually need to have a serious conversation looking at the facilities and looking at busing and looking at geography and transportation about actually reopening Williston as a high school in order to serve um, the county. Um, Williston was never just a trade school, as some people said. Williston always had um, a trade track, a college preparatory track. Um, a general education track. But I think we're going to need a fifth high school. Um, having the SeaTech, having the Isaac Bear, that's nice enough, but the numbers are not in our favor. So I think we want to be on the front of these geographic trends rather than on the backside and having overcrowded schools again like we did in 2012. So I think there needs to be a serious conversation about the benefits of reopening Williston. Thank you both for your time and for sharing your interviews with the Williston alumni with us. Coming up after the break, a conversation about Eagles Island and the possibility of a public park highlighting the region's history and natural beauty. I'm Rachel Keith for the Newsroom. Please stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. If you've driven over the Cape Fear River between New Hanover and Brunswick counties, then you've passed over Eagles Island, 3,000 acres of Martian wetland that belongs to a variety of federal, state, and local governments and a few private owners. Most people who know about Eagles Island know it as the home of the battleship North Carolina, but its history stretches back to Wilmington's origins. That includes the specter of enslaved people working on rice plantations, but also the rich Gullah Geechee culture that emerged in the descendants of those people. Descendants who developed their own distinctive arts, crafts, foodways, music, and language. 
The island was also home to key parts of Wilmington's shipbuilding industry, putting the young city on the world stage. And the island is just really damn pretty. When you stand on Wilmington's Riverwalk and look across at the unspoiled wilderness, it's hard to believe there's that much undeveloped land that close to downtown. My guests today are part of the Eagles Island Central Park Task Force, which aims to preserve this beauty and the island's history as a public park. Returning to the show is Evan Folds, a supervisor with the New Hanover Water and Soil Conservation District, which owns some land on Eagles Island, and Roger Shu, a professor of geology and oceanography at UNCW. Evan, Roger, thanks so much for being with us today. Great to be here. Thank you much. So, Roger, let's uh, start with you. How did you come to this project? been looking at uh, Eagles Island for quite a few years. In fact, I grew up in the area. Uh, out in Brunswick County, so I've known this area a long time. Uh, as Evan knows, uh, in fact, my father worked on the Brunswick River shipyard with Liberty ships and also helped bring in the uh, battleship uh, back in 1961. Uh, and as far as coming back into this, uh, started uh, looking at this again uh, in early 2000s, whenever I joined the Eagles Island Coalition and uh, we talked about the area as a potential site for education and to highlight the cultural uh, historical aspects of it and to highlight its ecological resources. So that's kind of how I've been uh, in this for quite a long period of time and then with the Eagles Island Task Force uh, you know, came to being, uh, took the opportunity to uh, try and put in a little bit of the stuff that we had done previously as well as some of the work that I've done on the educational side, uh, historical side of the island. Uh, and Evan, how about you? How'd you get involved with this? Yeah, I, I, I'm kind of a new kid on the block in a, in a sense. I, I sort of backed into it. I'm an elected supervisor with New Hanover Soil and Water Conservation District. And part of our charter is land ownership. And, you know, I would hear land ownership realities for soil and water on Eagles Island. There's almost a thousand acres it's owned. So it's sort of the last closet that I looked through of the soil and water ecosystem. And uh, Bill Graham of Renaissance Wilmington Foundation, him and his wife were moving out of town to Mexico, and this was one of his pet projects to breathe life into this Eagles Island Coalition vision of a cultural center and preservation, education, recreation sort of mantra, and it just struck me as the coolest project nobody knew anything about, and I didn't know anything about the history of Eagles Island. I just drove over it and knew the battleship was there, uh, but didn't realize it was a 3,000-acre island, and and that was really the source of the first industry of Wilmington, which was agriculture, which is my background. And the rice fields and the, the indigo out there was the Gullah culture performing that agriculture. And it just inspired me to be involved. And so I agreed to be the co-chair of the what's called the Eagles Island Central Park Task Force, along with Lloyd Singleton at Extension. And we're going to get to the park part, I promise. But I, I do want to give people a little background because I think so many of us, myself included, uh, we just drive over the island on the way to Leland or on the way into Wilmington from Brunswick County. So uh, can you guys give us a little bit of a you know, pocket history of the island, going back to the Gullah culture? That's Rogers. Wheelhouse there. Well, it's been you know, a long period of time. Uh, of course, the Gullah Geechee cultural heritage or a cultural corridor goes all the way from Florida up into North Carolina, basically ends at the Pender County line. So Brunswick County in particular, but also New Hanover County to a degree, uh, has had a role uh, in the Gullah uh, culture. You might know that uh, there's lots of work going on right now to try and provide a green and blue corridor down uh, the Brunswick 
River and also the Cape Fear River uh, to highlight some of that uh, cultural history. There's a couple of sites such as in uh, Nevassa, uh, which has a long history. Uh, the Mose Heritage Site is going to be developed to be an educational site there to highlight uh, the Gullah Geechee uh, heritage. Uh, and as far as Eagles Island goes, you know, that really got started uh, way back. Uh, Eagles Island name, in fact, comes from Richard Eagles back in the 1730s. Came from Charleston, South Carolina, where obviously the rice culture was, was really big. And uh, came to this area and got a land grant for some acreage on uh, Eagles Island. And as it turns out, there were questionably two rice plantations on Eagles Island itself, the uh, Bleak House and Osawatomie uh, plantations that actually operated through the late 1800s and said to be into the early 1900s. So the history of the area is quite important as far as the rice plantations. Uh, that's probably second in importance on Eagles Island, though, to the naval stores industry, which is uh, you know, really a, a fundamental part of the area too. In fact, Eagles Island uh, was a site for um, storage and processing of naval stores. Uh, some people might have even read about that in Wilmington's lies associated with uh, Eagles Island being an area where naval stores was <laughs> being for not just shipping, but also processing. Uh, Wilmington really looked at it as something that was kind of smelly as well as partially dangerous. And so uh, that was uh, an area that was really big uh, through the early 1900s as well. So those are the two big uh, cultural, historical, economic drivers uh, on Eagles Island. And so for people like me who don't know exactly what naval stores are, help me out here. What is that? Naval Stores is really the foundation of North Carolina Tar Heels, uh, as they say, with uh, the Naval Stores is basically the tar pitch resin from the Longleaf Pine. Uh, it was tapped starting in the late 1600s, particularly into the 17 and early 1800s. It was the glue that held the wooden ships together, as a matter of fact, led to the putting of the tar uh, to make them waterproof, but also uh, seaworthy and also putting that onto some things like ropes and other materials. And so there's a couple of different processes that you'd go through to do the tar. Uh, you could either notch trees to allow it to uh, drip from the tree or do tar kilns where you would capture that in the barrels. And then Wilmington was the naval stores capital of the entire world in the early 1800s, actually through about 1870 or 80, uh, as a shipping point for the naval stores. So I want to talk a little bit about a little more recent history. Uh, this is something that I think people wonder a lot when they stand in Wilmington's beautiful downtown and look across the river at the kind of surprising lack of development on the other side of the Cape Fear River. I mean, just about every square inch of Wilmington is built out. But, you know, obviously there isn't any development on the other side of the river on Eagle Island. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about, you know, why that is the way it is? Well, I, my, my piece of that, um, having come to this with uh, with new eyes, because I, I know Roger's got some, some history in this in terms of the charrettes that were held over the last 10 years. Um, there's been some attempts to, to create preservation on the island. Um, ultimately, 
the the land south of the battleship if you're looking at the battleship to the left right across the heart of downtown is the commercial commercially owned land um it's the only land that's above the 100-year floodplain. I believe, uh, Roger, correct me, it's about two and a half acres. So I'd, I'd love to hear Roger speak to, to that reality of the, the sea level rise and the, the conversation that needs to be had about that. My piece is really to try to galvanize a conversation with all of the vested interests in this area to do something great for this region. Um, and so that's proven to be very difficult because it's, it's a hard conversation to have when we're a land ownership civilization. And, you know, basically people can do whatever they want with their land within reason. You know, we're not trying to be presumptuous with somebody else's land. What, what we're seeing is uh, it doesn't make sense to develop over there uh, outwardly. And that's not just our idea. So rather than trying to direct how this is going to happen uh, in land that we don't own, we're more trying to, to engineer a conversation that, frankly, uh, we would hope provides an out for the landowners to to be able to, to leverage the land for something beneficial for public use. Um, so there's a, a lot of history there, but uh, it's a really a challenging space to be in in that regard. And I, I can just say that if this land was, you know, 40 feet above the floodplain in the middle of New Hanover County, we wouldn't be having this conversation in the same way. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Newsroom from WHQR Public Media. So in terms of who owns the different parts of Eagles Island, the island itself is kind of mostly in Brunswick County, but partially in New Hanover County. Leland owns parts of it. You've got the U.S. Maritime Commission owns part of it, the NCDOT. There's a lot of government agencies sort of have claim to this. But there is, you know, of the two to 3,000 acres, there's, you know, maybe 20 to 30 that's privately owned. And that's, that's the part that's adjacent to the battleship. Is that correct? Yeah, that's, that's correct. The thing with the acreage, it's uh, actually the Army Corps down there where the dredge spoil areas are is about 1,470 acres. And the island itself is about 3,170, give or take. So that's really only about 1,650 acres, give or take, that is, you know, in what you just described as both private, federal, uh, and in municipality uh, interest, including soil and water, uh, as a matter of fact, for part of that land. Obviously, a lot of people who probably have to come to the table to make this thing work. But let's talk about your idea of the park. And you've, we've talked about this before in passing, and you've described it as, you know, a central park for southeastern North Carolina. What, what is your guys' vision for a park on Eagle Island? I can update you on the activities of the task force. We've engaged with um, the Coastal Dynamics Design Lab. It's an outfit of NC State that helps produce documents and kind of visioning exercises uh, that are connected to real-world applications, and they sort of help you dream up new new ways of engaging coastal environments, which this is an ideal project for. So we've got some really exciting work coming in that regard. The cultural center concept has been central to what I signed up to try to breathe life into what's become clear is that, you know, the line that I described walking, which is very difficult. We don't, we don't want to be uh, controversial in that way. We don't want to come across as activists here. You know, we're just advocating to do something great for a region and a situation with a lot of vested interest. And so, you know, the, the mantra is sort of preservation, education, recreation, you know, the, the concept of central parks for the South has a ring to it, you know, there's a sense of the group that not wanting to project the idea that it would be like Central Park in New York City. 
Um, it may be a passive nature park, more like Brunswick Nature Park, uh, for example. We're working that out. We're, we're going to seek public input. We're not going to try to do it in a bubble. Uh, but one of the recent developments that's been really exciting this whole time, I've been kind of, you know, from my volunteer position, like what could come in here and wrap all of this up, right? Like how am I going to do that uh, or this group for that matter? And it, it turns out this week will be announced, um, and I'm firm that I could share this information, the Gullah Geechee Greenway Blueway uh, project that is uh, a mission of the NAACP in Brunswick County had just received word that they received one of three technical assistance grants from the National Park Service, which is a really big deal because that's the type of entity that could come in and seek the financial resources to really fashion something of value here. So you can't take that to the bank or anything yet. And we're still in the beginning days of how we might coordinate that. But we're searching for some sort of avenue that can make sense of all of the interests that you referenced there. There's a lot of history here. There's a lot of natural beauty here. And because of the way, because of tidal floodings and other issues, it's just hard to build in a traditional commercial way here. Like this isn't the ideal place to plop down riverfront condos, or I feel like there probably would be riverfront condos there. So there's a completely different way to sort of approach this land. You know, I, I know that this has sort of been discussed on and off for years, but without, without trying to put you two on the spot, do you feel like the things are actually moving forward a little bit now? I think they're moving forward. I, I think engagement with the community, uh, both on the Uhadver side as well as on the Brunswick side, we've been trying to uh, engage uh, different uh, organizations as well as the governmental bodies. I think that's been a real positive for us. I think we're going to continue to do that. And I think you hit the nail on the head with exactly some of the issues because this low-lying area, as Evan referred to, really has quite a few issues with it. Most of it is emergent wetland uh, areas, as it's called. Uh, there's a few scrub forested areas. Some of that has invasive species on it. And mostly what we would like to do is see this area be looked at as mostly passive recreation and to have that cultural, historical, ecological uh, venue that would be so important for everybody. You know, we don't have a lot of green space uh, here in New Hanover County. Brunswick County west of Highway 17 has a lot of green space still. But, you know, having this as a central area to one of the most or one of the fastest growing areas in the entire state is really, really important to us. And just to add one more thing, whenever you look at uh, the flooding issues, I promise you tonight that there will be flooding on the road at the battleship uh, because it's the coincidence of the moon's perigee being close to the earth as well as full moon tomorrow. And whenever those things coincide, we have flooding on many of our areas. And it's increasing from like 20 days a year back in 2000 to 100 uh, today. And by 2060 to 70, there's going to be 300 days. So you got to look at really the information that's there to determine what the best use of that property is. Uh, there's only a small amount of the area that's above base flood elevation. And what we need to do is think about what kinds of structures and what kinds of venues would be there that would not be so impacted by that 100 and 500 year flood event. We believe raising things like, you know, areas for the education that would be a great supplement to the battleship would be a fantastic use of properties in that area. 
All right. Well, for people who want more information or want to get involved, you know, what can they do? Yeah, that, immediately the best place is our Facebook page. Eagles Island Nature Park is the, the the Eagles Island Central Park Task Force is is challenging itself to deliver Eagles Island Nature Park as it's called now. Uh, eventually, we imagine that might be named by the public and, and we receive input from that. Um, but for now, the Facebook page, we're, we're developing a, a splash page to start on our website that's going to seek some public input that should be available in the next week or so at eaglesislandnaturepark.org. And we'll have links to all of that on the show page for people who want to get in touch with you guys and get involved. I always want to talk to folks, so let us know. Thanks a lot. Absolutely. All right. Well, guys, thank you so much. Roger, thank you. Evan, great to have you back on the show. Thanks, Ben. Thanks again. Okay. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition of The Newsroom. Just a quick editorial note. Our interview with Evan and Roger was recorded last week on June 23rd. So if you're keenly attuned to the movements of celestial bodies and you were thrown off by Roger's comment about the full moon and lunar perigree, that's why. And with that, my thanks to our guests this week, Michael Pratz, Evan Folds, and Roger Shu. Thanks also to our own Rachel Keith and her guests, Christine McDowell and Sam Garrett. Our technical team is Ken Campbell and Andrew Craig. Andrew is moving on to the next exciting phase of his career. Andrew, thank you for all of your help getting the newsroom up and running, and we wish you the best. If you missed part of this program, you can find it at whqr.org, and if you're listening on Friday, you can catch a rebroadcast on Sunday at 1 p.m., followed by Coastline. You can also find it as a podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and after months of promises, on Google Podcasts. Yes, I'm very excited about that. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom. <laughs>